Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Unknown Friends podcast this week. You've tuned in today to the final episode of the season, episode 40 of season 2. A great big thank you to all of you awesome listeners who make the podcast possible. I've really enjoyed this season, and I hope you have too. And I'm really looking forward to season three, which will launch in early January 2022. Uh, more about that at the end of today's episode. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wim Productions, and to learn more about me and my work as a playwright, simply visit my website, kittywimproductions.com. And in fact, I'll just throw this in here, although today's episode is my last book review of the year, and I'll then be taking a break from the podcast for the holidays, you can still hear from me this month because I've got a new play being premiered in just 11 days. It's going to be live streamed on YouTube for free, open access, so if you'd like to watch it, you can. It's a Christmas drama set in Nebraska in 1899, and it's titled The Fontanelle House. And I'm actually acting in the play as well as having written the script, so I'm super excited about it, and I'd love for you to watch the live stream if you're interested. The performance dates are December 12th, 14th, and 15th, and you'll find lots more details on my website or social media accounts. I'll put all that info in this episode's description. So once again, that is The Fontanelle House, coming December 12th, 14th, and 15th. All right, back to what you're here for today. Our last book review in our series on C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. So we're now down to the final book, book seven, called The Last Battle, which in my opinion is both the darkest and the brightest of all the chronicles. It has invited a variety of responses from readers and critics. Not too long ago, I read an article from one Narnia fan who said he'd always felt that The Last Battle was a disappointing conclusion to the series, but I pretty strongly disagree with that. And in fact, when it was published in 1956, The Last Battle won the prestigious Carnegie Medal, which is a British award given annually to one outstanding work of children's literature. So certainly the folks in charge of the Carnegie Medal thought The Last Battle was pretty impressive, and I'm inclined to agree with them. The story is set a couple hundred years after the events of The Silver Chair, which is chronologically the preceding book, and the main character of The Last Battle is the current young king of Narnia, King Tyrion. He is a descendant of Prince Rillian from The Silver Chair, who of course was in turn the son of Caspian, one of our heroes from both The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Prince Caspian. So Tyrion comes from a noble line of kings, and the land of Narnia has been at peace under his rule and for the past few generations. But unbeknownst to Tyrion, deep trouble is looming on the edges of Narnia. It starts with a talking ape named Shift, who lives in the west of Narnia and spends most of his time bossing around his poor obliging friend named Puzzle, who is a talking donkey. Uh, 
And Shift, the ape, has a devious plan, and he craftily ropes Puzzle into it. Shift gets a lion skin and tailors it and fits it onto Puzzle the donkey and ultimately wants Puzzle to impersonate the great lion Aslan in order to try to seize power in Narnia. The real Aslan has not been seen or heard from in several generations, and so Shift, the ape, sees this as an opportunity to get control of Narnia. He will tell Puzzle what to do, and Puzzle will be Shift's pawn, through which Shift hopes to intimidate and control all the other talking animals and creatures in Narnia. The first King Tyrion hears of all this is a rumor that Aslan has been seen in the west part of Narnia, and Tyrion is overjoyed. He has never met Aslan, nor did his father or grandfather, and it's literally a dream come true for him that he might be able to see Aslan for himself. And so Tyrion, along with his best friend, a, a talking unicorn named Jewel, hope to encounter this Aslan that they've heard tell of. But then they start hearing some other rumors. They hear that this Aslan has commanded for the felling of Narnian trees, which of course are sentient beings in this world, living, talking trees. So to cut down a Narnian tree is literally murder. And apparently, Aslan is also in negotiations with the Kalormians, the race of men who live south of Narnia and don't believe in Aslan at all, ironically. But the rumor is that Aslan is sending talking animals, free Narnian subjects, to become slaves and work animals in Kalorman. Of course, King Tyrion and Jewel the Unicorn are shocked and dismayed by this news. Everything they've been taught about Aslan is contrary to what they're hearing now. They believe that Aslan is the good, life-giving lord of Narnia, but this Aslan sounds cruel. And of course, it's all the ape shift, working through Puzzle the Donkey to take power over Narnia and make dirty deals with the Kalormians. Well, Tyrion and Jewel realize that they must investigate this further and learn the truth. Is this the real Aslan? And if so, have they been wrong about Aslan all along? Or has he changed? Is he really a merciless tyrant? Or is there some dark plot at work in Narnia? Of course, they discover in time that it is all a lie. This is not the true Aslan, which is a relief to Tyrion and Jewel because even deeper than their concern about Narnian subjects being tyrannized was the terrible fear that Aslan might not be the kind of lord they'd always believed him to be. So once they know that it's a counterfeit Aslan they're dealing with, they can at least hold on tight to their faith and hope in the real Aslan even though they've still never met him. They trust that what they were always taught about him is still true, and they cling to that. But by the time they figure out what Shift is doing, the ape already has a pretty tight grip 
on the west of Narnia. And freeing the Narnians from Shift's control turns out to be a much harder task than Tyrion had anticipated. So eventually, desperate, Tyrion invokes the real Aslan and asks for help in his crisis. And that's when we read what we've come to expect in the Chronicles of Narnia. A couple of children from our world, from England, get swept into Narnia and come to Tyrion's aid. And it is two children we've met before. It's Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole, our heroes from the Silver Chair, who followed Aslan's signs and traveled with Puddleglum the Marshwiggle to find the lost Prince Rillian, who, of course, is the present King Tyrion's ancestor. So Jill and Eustace are called back into Narnia. A few years later by Earth time, a few centuries later by Narnian time. And they do their best to help Tyrion and Jewel fight against Shift's plot to take over Narnia. But even then, victory is not easily won. Time and time again in the last battle, King Tyrion's hopes are renewed that he can perhaps save his Narnian subjects and defeat this false Aslan plot. And time and time again, his hopes fade as his enemies cunningly evade his attempts to restore truth and freedom to Narnia. So things don't look good for Tyrion and his friends. They keep trying, but things just keep closing in around them. And yet, not all is what it seems to be. That is the beauty of it. Light breaks the darkness. There is hope even in defeat. There is life even in death. In truth, death is not death when Aslan is lord. And the last battle, the the final chronicle of Narnia, portrays that truth about as powerfully as anything I've read. It has certainly shaped how I think about life and death and eternity. Now here is the thing. The last battle can't really be discussed adequately without spoilers. It's just the fact. So if you haven't read the book yet, Honestly, you might want to stop listening to this episode right now because I really don't want to ruin the ending of The Last Battle for you, especially since it's bigger than just the ending of one book. It's the finale of the whole series, and I would hate to spoil its brilliant surprises. So if you haven't yet read The Last Battle, stop listening to me and go read the book after, of course, you've read the other six Narnia stories. Then you can come back and finish this podcast episode if you want. But those of you who do know how the last battle ends, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about what C.S. Lewis is doing in this story, with this finale especially. It's so glorious, especially after the, the near despair of the book's early chapters. So as you know if you've read it, Tyrion and his friends take their last stand against the Kalormians and their allies outside of the dreadful little stable where Shift had kept Puzzle, dressed up in his lion skin. 
And it's clear by now that something very strange is going on with that stable. First of all, a talking cat who was in league with the Kalormines went into the stable and came out scared, quite literally witless. The cat's wickedness came to the point that it actually costed its soulishness. The cat reverted to being a common mute animal without the ability to speak. And so only terror and lies have come from the stable so far, and Tyrion and his friends believe some horror may be inside now, summoned by their enemies, who early in the story invoked the Kalormine god called Tash, who is more like a demon than a god. So Tyrion makes his last stand just outside the stable, and it becomes clear that the Kalormines intend to drive Tyrion and the other good Narnians into the stable, and then burn the stable as an offering to their god Tash. Tyrion tries desperately to keep himself and his friends away from the horrible stable, but there's no avoiding it, and eventually, one by one, they are all forced through its dark doorway. But then, the unpredictable, the impossible, happens. Tyrion, when he's driven into the stable, suddenly looks around and finds himself not inside a dark stable, but out in the open air, in daylight, in perfect, beautiful summer weather. And behind him stands a freestanding, closed door, but no building. It is, in fact, as we eventually figure out, a door of death, which is to say, a door into new life. And from there, things only get lovelier for Tyrion and his faithful friends. They have fought the good fight, they've crossed the last threshold, and as the book's final chapters proceed, they journey together further up and further in, into paradise. And one of my favorite quotes from the whole Chronicles of Narnia is when Aslan gently is explaining to them all that they are actually dead, which none of them had realized the experience was so unlike what they had expected it to be. And Aslan simply says this, All of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Narnia, and specifically the last battle, helped me as a child glimpse the joy of heaven. It helped me see death as nothing more frightening than a doorway, which looks from the outside like a dark chasm, but once you step through, opens into a world so beautiful and good that it's impossible to adequately describe. A world that still contains everything we cherish about this world and our lives together here and now, but better, more lovely, more solid. A heaven without any of the shadows that tend to darken earth. But what C.S. Lewis also shows us in The Last Battle 
is that heaven cannot be forced on anyone. As we discussed last week with the magician's nephew, all get what they want, though they do not always like it. People see what they want to see, and believe what they want to believe, and get what they want to get. It's just how life works. And so if we're not happy in life, we need to reevaluate what we want, what we are pursuing in life, because there's bound to be a connection. We discussed that with Uncle Andrew somewhat, and Lewis returns to this theme in The Last Battle. So along with Tyrion and his friends, there's a group of Narnian dwarves who the Kalormians force through the stable door as well, intending to sacrifice them to the god Tash. But the dwarves were not allies of King Tyrion. They were actually an independent group in the last battle, who did not believe in the god Tash, and did not believe in Aslan either, and just wanted to be autonomous and left to themselves. So the Kalormans threw them into the stable right along with Tyrion and his allies. But the dwarves, just like all of us, can only see what they want to see. Tyrion, who all his life has been guided by a love for Aslan and has longed to meet the great lion face to face, he sees the heavenly world he has magically entered through the stable door, because it's Aslan's world, and it's everything Tyrion has ever wanted. But the dwarves, on the other hand, literally cannot see the wide-open fields and sunlight and groves of fruit trees that Tyrion sees and admires. The dwarves are so bound up in themselves that they truly believe they are inside a dingy, smelly little stable, when they're not. But they don't want Aslan, they don't want his creation, they don't want fellowship with his people. They want to be left to themselves in darkness. And so they are left to themselves in darkness. Aslan tries, don't, don't get me wrong, he tries to help the dwarves see the truth, see the beautiful world around them, to, to draw them out of themselves. Aslan even creates a magical feast for the dwarves to eat, but they cannot see or even taste the food accurately. They think they're eating scraps of moldy old food and, and water from a trough, like you'd find in a real stable, when they're actually eating a glorious banquet and drinking fine wine. They cannot see the truth because they do not want to see it. They have loved darkness rather than light. Aslan sums it up this way. They will not let us help them. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. But then, as a sort of contrast to the dwarves, Lewis also gives us one more character in The Last Battle who embodies the flip side of the truth that all get what they want. There's a young Kalormian officer in The Last Battle named Emmeth, who has been the subject of much debate among readers and critics. 
theological debate, mostly, but I won't get into that. What Lewis essentially wants to show us is that even if you don't understand everything about God, even if you're you're groping ignorantly in the dark through life, trying to find him, and maybe you're looking in all the wrong places, if you are honestly, wholeheartedly seeking him, you will find him in the end. So Emmeth, raised in Kalorman, of course, has worshipped the Kalormine god Tash all of his life. But without getting into the details of his story, the important point is this. The moment Emmeth encounters Aslan for the first time, he knows instantly that Aslan is the true lord of the world, and Tash is not. And Emmeth bows before Aslan and acknowledges that this great lion embodies his heart's desire. And Aslan welcomes him as a beloved son. It's a beautiful moment. All get what they want. Or as Aslan puts it in this book, all find what they truly seek. Recently, I ran across an article online by a classics professor named Emily Wilson, and she was discussing C.S. Lewis, although not really his Narnia books, primarily, but one statement she made really stood out to me, and I thought it was so well said that I wanted to share it here. She wrote, What makes Lewis at his best a great figure is that he understood happiness. Surprised by Joy is the title of Lewis's spiritual autobiography, and he also understood how easy it is to reject it. God, or in Narnia, Aslan, freely extends the offer of infinite joy to each one of us. It's astonishingly easy and common to refuse his offer of happiness. But there's no withholding on his part. If we miss out on infinite joy, it's entirely our own choice. But if we honestly seek true happiness, we will find it. And Lewis understood that. Surprised by joy certainly does describe not only his own spiritual journey, but also, I think, all of his stories. Despite the darkness of the early part of the book, what I love so deeply about the last battle is the joy at the end, which shines so much brighter than it would otherwise because of the darkness before it. Tyrion is surprised by joy, and he's surprised by how easy it is to reach joy when one's longings in life are centered on Aslan. All find what they truly seek. It saddens me a little that my words are so inadequate to communicate the beauty of Narnia. But I do believe it's better to try and fall short than never to try at all. So thank you so much for sticking with me through this series of discussions of Lewis's Chronicles and it has certainly been a refreshment to me to return to the books once more and experience them all over again. 
If you have read the Chronicles, I hope you enjoyed taking a second look at the stories and characters and themes Lewis is exploring. And if you haven't read the Narnia books, the only thing I can say is please do. If the stories I have described sound anything like stories you might appreciate, I encourage you to give the Chronicles a try. I I do understand that the genre of children's fantasy literature may not be suited to everyone's taste, but if you have any interest at all, these books are worth your time, I promise. They might even alter the way you think and give you images and truths to latch onto that can help make sense of everyday life, even, which is what they've done for me. So thanks for listening today and for listening throughout the season. This week is, of course, our last book review of the year, so I will be absent from the podcast for a few weeks, but you can expect me back with season three in early January. As I've mentioned briefly in recent episodes, the season three episode schedule will be slightly different from the first two seasons, so I will explain that quickly now. My book review episodes next year will be coming out every other week instead of every week. So episode one of season three will be coming out on Wednesday, January 5th, and then the next week will be an off week, and then episode two on January 19th, and so on. And then patrons, instead of monthly preview episodes next season, I'm actually going to be sharing bonus book review episodes exclusively with you guys. They will be approximately once a month, though it'll end up being slightly more frequent than that, because the schedule will work this way. Every four weeks, I'll be posting a bonus book review for patrons only on your guys' exclusive Patreon podcast feed. So season three will have kind of a four-week cycle. Every first and third week, I'll post one of my regular public book review episodes, and then every fourth week, there will be a private podcast episode with a bonus book review for patrons only. So I don't know, it might sound confusing when I try to describe it here, but it's actually not that complicated, and I think you guys will get used to it quickly. So that's the plan. So remember, Wednesday, January 5th, you can expect me back for the launch of Season 3 of Unknown Friends. And until then, I hope you guys have a fantastic holiday season, a beautiful Christmas, and a happy New Year's. Thanks for another great season of Unknown Friends this year, and I'm so excited for what next year will hold for the podcast. Thanks, guys, and I will be back in just a few weeks. Thank you.